going on, food eaters? This is Mel Weinstein, host of the Food Labels Revealed podcast and the self-professed prophet of processed foods. A new episode is released at the end of every month. This is episode number 30. This program is another in the irregular series called Hidden Ingredients in Food, where I talk about chemicals that will likely never show up on a food label. The subject today is beef. Sounds simple enough, right? What kinds of hidden ingredients could wind up in beef, you ask? Well, there is a lot to talk about, from cradle to grave, so to speak. By the end, you may be a bit surprised, even a little astonished, or possibly a bit alarmed. We'll see. For me, this was one of the most challenging programs to work on, not just because of the difficulty of the research, but also the time it took. I estimate that I spent over 26 hours on the documentation and writing for this piece. So, be forewarned. Because of the substantial amount of information that I found, this program will be longer than most. But before I get to what's on your plate, here are a few brief messages. For newcomers to the podcast, here's some info about me. I have a 30-plus year background in chemistry education, food testing, and food chemical research. And for much of that time, I've had a fascination, some may call it an obsession, with the topic of processed foods, what's in those foods, and how they may be affecting our health. I try to look behind the commercial food curtain at all of those strange, hard-to-pronounce, and sometimes dangerous ingredients that wind up in many of the foods stocked on the shelves of our grocery stores. This is a 100% free, on-demand radio show. Yes, I said free. Just put that money back in your pocket. This podcast has no sponsors, financial supporters, or Kickstarter campaigns. All the opinions expressed in this podcast are mine, and to keep it that way, I don't promote any commercial products or work with a sponsoring organization. All I ask of you is to listen, and if you are informed, educated, or entertained by the content, please let others know through social media or the old-fashioned way, word of mouth. Website and contact information will be provided at the end of the show. Let's get this show going. So today's program is another one about the hidden ingredients in food. Previously, I talked about the hidden ingredients in wine and in beer in podcast number 19 and 25, respectively. By hidden ingredients, I'm referring to anything that is consumed but has no listing on the package label. Today, the subject is beef. To be clear, I'm only going to be talking about unprocessed beef, which, as a natural product, is not required to have an ingredient label. When you go to the grocery store and purchase an unprocessed beef product like a sirloin or ribeye or flank steak, there is no ingredient or nutrition facts label on the package. You may see information about inspection, grading, fat content, etc., but the product is considered pure, like a banana or apple. So the government does not require an ingredients list. The product is unprocessed because there are no added preservatives, colorants, flavorings, etc. However, 
The processed meats, like sausages, hot dogs, and luncheon meats, are a whole other story, since there are hundreds of possible antidotes that can wind up in those foods. So, in regards to whole beef, that is products called all beef, whole beef or 100% beef, what's there to talk about? Good question. When you eat animal flesh, you're just not eating muscle and fat. You may also be consuming residues of things that the animals were exposed to, such as chemicals in their food and water, biological organisms from the environment, and contaminations from processing facilities such as slaughterhouses and meat packing plants, as well as potential biohazards from the animals themselves. For the sake of time, I won't be talking about biohazards like bacterial contaminations, for example, E. coli, which is a very big subject. And also, I won't be talking about uh, zoonotic diseases, that is, uh, illnesses transferred from animals to humans, for example, swine flu. Before getting into the subject, for the purpose of full disclosure, I need to reveal that I don't eat red meat. However, all the information presented in this program comes from reliable sources such as government organizations, the beef industry itself, scientific publications and respected journals, and a few well-known and respected magazines and newspapers. In reporting this information, I don't have an axe to grind against the meat industry. Obviously, it's impossible to get rid of all bias, but I'll be doing my best to stick to the facts as I know them through the various informed sources that I used. All the resources and references used for this program will be available in the show notes at www.podbean.com. Let's begin with the cows and what they eat. There are basically two types of cows raised in the United States for food. There are beef cattle and dairy cattle. They are different species and therefore differ significantly in the quality of the meat produced. Of course, the dairy cattle are all females selected for their milk production. At the end of their short milking career, about five years, according to the Alberta Milk Organization of Canada, they wind up in the supermarket as primarily hamburger. At least 100 dairy cows are blended into a production lot of ground beef. So whatever those cows are exposed to may wind up in the hamburgers. For dairy cows to produce milk, they must be pregnant. Like humans, on average, they give birth to half females and half males. The males, being useless to the dairy industry, are either raised as veiled calves or they are killed shortly after birth. The beef animals are a mixture of males and females known as beef cattle and beef cows, respectively. The males, except for a few retained for breeding purposes or as bull beef, are castrated shortly after birth and are known as steers. They live for about three years before being slaughtered. In the United States in July 2018, there were about 103 million beef animals being raised for food. Commercial cattle slaughter during 2017 totaled 32.2 million head with federal inspection of 98.5% of the total. Steers comprised 52.9% of 
of the total federally inspected cattle slaughter. Heifers were 27.2%, dairy cows 9.4%, other cows 8.8%, and finally bulls were 1.7%. Now keep that 32.2 million slaughtered cows in your head for later. So what food do cows eat? Note that from this point forward, I will be referring to all beef animals as cows, regardless of gender, just to keep things simple. Now, if you said grass or forage, you're absolutely correct. However, that's a simplistic answer. When calves are born, they nurse from their mother uh, for up to six months. Then, if the cows are not 100% grass-fed, they spend the last months of their short lives in a feedlot, also called a CAFO, C-A-F-O, which stands for a Concentrated Animal Feeding Operation, where they are fed a formula feed designed to rapidly put weight on them. If you have ever had the displeasure of driving across the flatlands of Kansas or Nebraska or Colorado, your nostrils may have been treated to the odious fumes coming off of these feedlots. If the cows are grass-fed, then that diet is pretty natural and clean. No worries about chemical pesticide or herbicide residues getting into the animals, since it would be a waste of money to spray rangelands and pastures. However, way more than 90% of cows are not raised that way. It's too expensive, takes too much time, and it's not economical. So most cattle are shipped to feedlots for the last three to six months of their lives where they eat a special diet designed to rapidly fatten them up. Some feedlots have associated farms where crops are raised like hay to become part of a high energy diet. Cows that wind up in feedlots are called grain finished since a significant part of their diet are grains, which are high in carbs, as opposed to grasses, which are high in fiber or cellulose. So what kinds of foods can wind up in cattle feed? Here's a short list. Corn, wheat, oats, barley, sorghum, the byproducts of wet milling, such as soybean meal, corn gluten meal, cottonseed meal, peanut meal or skins, and distiller grains, which are the solid material left over from the fermentation of corn to produce alcohol. Also, there's beet pulp, hominy, corn silage, which is like corn stalks, carrot pulp, dried cattle manure, coffee grounds, poultry fat, potato waste, feather meal, and urea. If you're thinking that any food waste that has some nutritive value can wind up in animal feed, you're right. Nothing gets wasted as indicated by the feather meal, coffee grounds, and dried cattle manure. Ugh, banish the thought. So, the cattle eat these foods, but are there any lasting effects for the people who eat the cattle? That is, their meat. Yes, I'll mention two. The intention is to get the cows to eat as much as possible in a short period of time to grow them rapidly. Not surprisingly, the cows are attracted to the same kinds of food that we are, foods that contain a lot of sugar. As we've learned, 
The obesity epidemic in this country is fueled by processed foods that are high in sugar. Consumptions of large amounts of fast foods and ultra-processed foods rich in sugar cause us to inflate in size. It's no different with the cows. The feedstuffs from wet-milled corn, like corn gluten feed and corn gluten meal, are waste products from the processed corn industry, but they're high in sugar. The cows will come running for that kind of food. They have a sweet tooth just like us, and their brains are wired to seek out sugar in good-tasting food. The more they eat, the fatter they get. They pass that fat on to us. The second effect has more to do with potential hidden ingredients in beef. All those intact and processed crops, like soybean and corn, that are fed to cows have been sprayed with chemical pesticides and herbicides. Since the cows are consuming large quantities of feed, residues from agricultural chemicals, particularly chemicals that are fat-soluble, that is, they get stored in fat tissue, can bioaccumulate in the cows, possibly turning the beef into a toxic product. According to a report from Iowa State University entitled 2018 Herbicide Guide for Iowa Corn and Soybean Production, there are 33 herbicides used on corn and 27 herbicides used on soybeans, the vast majority of which are fat-soluble. A few of these herbicides are well-known toxins like 2,4-D-choline, a possible carcinogen, dicamba, a potential endocrine disruptor, and atrazine, which affects reproductive health and was banned in the European Union in 2003. Regarding pesticides, a report from the University of Wisconsin Extension Service entitled Pest Management in Wisconsin Field Crops reveals that there are 29 pesticides used on corn and 18 used on soybeans. Some of the more notorious ones are chlorpyrifos. Persistent health effects can occur from long-term exposure to low doses and developmental effects in fetuses and children. And then there's carburial, also known as 7, a likely human carcinogen, which is banned in the UK, Austria, Denmark, Sweden, Iran, Germany, and Angola. But how do we know we're consuming toxic chemicals in beef? Here's the rub. We don't. They won't be visible and you won't taste them. If present, those chemicals will be there in low concentrations, but they could bioaccumulate in your body over time, leading to health issues down the road. But doesn't the government monitor beef for the presence of toxic chemicals? Yes and no, as we shall see. The United States Department of Agriculture, the USDA, through its sub-department known as FSIS, Food Safety and Inspection Service, is tasked with the inspection and testing of beef products to make sure that they are wholesome, safe, and accurately labeled. If you go to the FSIS websites, you'll read lots of stuff about how the agency protects American consumers by routinely examining the meat produced in slaughterhouses. Do they actually provide data on the number of cows tested and the results of the lab tests that they perform? Yes, they do. But you have to do a little digging online to find that data. Follow along with me 
as I attempt to drill down into the FSIS website. First, we go to www.fsis.usda.gov. G-O-V. That's their homepage. Here we are told what FSIS is all about, its organizational structure and history. Next, we click on a tab called Topics and select Data Collection and Reports. Then we click on Residue Chemistry. Next, we click on U.S. National Residue Results, also called the Red Book. Then finally, we click on FY 2017 Residue Sample Results and we strike gold. Here we find a 51-page PDF document that describes the sampling and testing of chemical residues in meat, poultry, and egg products. Likely our little excursion stops since I assume most of you will not want to read this document. I've never had any courses in governees, but I will tackle the difficult job of going through this document for you saving you a big migraine, and doing battle with all those wonderful acronyms that our government is so fond of using. First, a little bit of history. As you know, I like history, particularly as it pertains to food and science. We can thank Abraham Lincoln, yes, the Abraham Lincoln, for establishing the USDA in 1862. Later, in 1883... Harvey W. Wiley, M.D., was appointed as the chief chemist at the Bureau of Chemistry and Agency of the USDA, and he single-handedly changed how that department operated when it came to the food supply and public safety. He was behind the Pure Food and Drugs Act of 1906, also known as the Wiley Act designed to protect the public from adulterated foods and medicines. He was very influential and had an interesting life. Sometime I may devote a whole episode to the amazing things that Dr. Wiley did. The Bureau of Chemistry eventually became the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, in 1930. The next big change came from an author. Do you remember the book, The Jungle? by Sinclair Lewis? Maybe it was required reading in your high school English class. If you haven't read it, I strongly recommend it. There is a free version at the website Project Gutenberg. Sinclair was an investigative journalist in Chicago at the turn of the century. In 1904, he spent seven weeks working undercover in Chicago's meatpacking plants. Two years later, Out of that experience came the book, The Jungle, an intense political and social expose that dealt with the shocking unsanitary conditions and gore in the plants, as well as the miserable lives of the European immigrants who worked there. It became an instant bestseller, despite attempts to ban it. The publisher sold 26,000 copies in six weeks, a phenomenal number for those days. Needless to say, the slaughterhouses and meatpacking companies were very unhappy with its publication. Jack London, 
a very famous author, called the book The Uncle Tom's Cabin of Wage Slavery. The poor working conditions, along with the exploitation of children, women, and men, exposed the corruption in meatpacking factories. Theodore Roosevelt, president at the time, got wind of the book and started his own investigation. Under public pressure, Congress eventually passed the Federal Meat Inspection Act in 1906, only two years after the publication of The Jungle. After additional laws were passed as regards food safety, the next incident to cause big change in the United States occurred in 1993, when an outbreak of E. coli O157H7 occurred in the Pacific Northwest, sickening 400 people and causing four deaths. The public demanded change for safer ground beef products. At the time, FSIS inspection relied mainly on sight, touch, and smell. Agency officials and stakeholders called for a more science-based meat and poultry inspection system. In response, FSIS stepped up its research on the benefits of hazard analysis and critical control points, known as HACCP, setting the stage for the most significant change in regulatory philosophy in the history of U.S. food inspection. Now fast forward to 2017. The FSIS had ramped up a program and schedule for the testing of animal products, and that year, 7,029 residue samples were collected under their scheduled inspections. Specifically, 6,643 samples were collected by FSIS inspection program personnel from the U.S. federal plants, and another 386 samples were collected from U.S. state inspected plants. But whoa, wait a second, wait a second. I just said that there were about 6,600 samples of animal tissue tested, but remember, there were 32.2 million cows slaughtered in 2017. Do the math. That's only one in every 4,600 cows. That's 0.02%. Why so few animals tested? Well, the FSIS uses a statistical model that calculates how many cows need to be tested to give a 95% probability of detecting at least one violation if the violation rate is equal to or greater than 1% of the cow population. Now try to wrap your head around that last statement. Let me try to translate. The FSIS claims that by testing 800 cows, they will catch contaminations occurring in 1% or more of the 32.2 million cows slaughtered in 2017. Does that make more sense? Well, if not, I give up. That's the best I can do. Just know that the FSIS tests only a minute percentage of the cow population for contaminations of toxic substances. But... I must add that it's not as bad as it sounds because FSIS meat inspectors on site in the slaughterhouses, if they see something suspicious, 
have the option to test cows right there in the plants. In 2017, there were an additional 177,138 samples tested using a kidney swab test. Any samples that tested positive for contamination were then sent to the FSIS field laboratories for further analysis. If we combine the 177,138 samples with the 7,029 mentioned earlier, the percentage of cows tested becomes 0.6%, which is still not great, but it's better. Next question, what are the cows tested for? Antibiotics, arsenic, medicines to treat worms, hormones, beta agonists, which are drugs to treat lung diseases, metals, and pesticides. Overall, cows are tested for the presence of 92 veterinary drugs, 13 antibiotics, 4 hormones, 17 metals, and over 100 pesticide residues. In 2017, the FSIS found that in all the tissue samples showing chemical contamination, there were only 16 that showed unacceptable contamination levels. Here are some of the toxic chemicals that were found. There were two pesticides, including DDT, 23 antibiotics, including well-known ones like ampicillin, penicillin, cipro, gentamicin, and tetracycline, three anti-inflammatory drugs, one asthma medication, one hormone growth inhibitor used in young cows to prevent pregnancy, and one feed additive to promote leanness, which is banned in most countries. I think the data clearly demonstrate that chemicals administered to cows for medical purposes or other purposes and residues from pesticides in their feed can wind up in their flesh and then in humans who eat the flesh. But there are some things missing from the FSIS data. For example, isn't it possible that toxic or non-toxic chemicals could interact with each other in a synergistic fashion, producing a more toxic substance? That possibility is never mentioned, but it would be difficult and very expensive to research those effects. Secondly, the FSIS only looks for four hormones that cows are exposed to. Why? I'll look at hormones in, a, in, a more, in more detail later. Thirdly, where are the herbicide tests? They are not mentioned in the FSIS Red Book. Thinking I must have overlooked something, I checked out what the FSIS calls their Blue Book, a manual describing the National Residue Program for Meat, Poultry, and Egg Products. After perusing that document, it was clear that the FSIS does not test cows for herbicide residues like glyphosate, which comes from Roundup. Interesting. It appears that the government does not consider herbicides as potential toxins to humans. However, other countries are concerned, particularly about two common herbicides used in field crops. Europe banned the use of atrazine in 2003 due to concerns that it can cause cancer, birth defects in newborns, and hormonal imbalances in girls during puberty. Europe is considering a ban of glyphosate 
by 2022 uh, due to a World Health Organization report implicating it as a probable human carcinogen. Let's turn our attention to hormones. I mentioned earlier that hormone levels are tested in beef. Why are there hormones in beef? Well, first of all, hormones are biochemicals normally found in all mammals. They are a class of signaling molecules produced in glands that are sent through the circulatory system to various organs to regulate the body and initiate specific behaviors. Everyone has heard of estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone, which regulate sexual processes and behavior. Many people, particularly women, have problems with thyroid hormones, which regulate metabolism. Chances are, if you are an older woman, you have an issue with thyroxin, or you know of someone who does. The synthetic hormone Synthroid, a thyroxin replacement, is one of the most commonly prescribed drugs for older women. So, hormones are powerful biochemicals capable of having profound effects in the body. If hormones are normally found in mammals, why bring them up here? Well, the hormones I want to talk about are added hormones, that is, hidden ingredients. To start with, let's look at the four hormones that the FSIS is particularly interested in. Magestrol is a synthetic form of progesterone used for birth control. Hexestrol is a synthetic estrogen and is one of the most potent estrogens to treat estrogen deficiency. Xeranol is a synthetic estrogen used as a growth promoter in cows. It is not approved for use in Europe due to its connections to breast cancer. So, to summarize, the FSIS is monitoring hormones that either are used for birth control or to promote animal growth. The hormones may be administered in cattle feed or they may be implanted in the back of a cow's ear. Let's look at the latter purpose. The ear implants dissolve slowly over a two-month period. The ear is used since cow's ears don't enter the food supply. Sex hormones were first introduced into livestock feed in 1947 when it was found that they increased fat production and added weight to the animals. In the 1950s, the hormone diethylstilbestrol, or DES, was touted as one of the most important developments in food production. Two-thirds of all beef cows in 1956 were treated with that hormone. Unfortunately, by the 1970s, DES was found to trigger cancer and was removed from the market. It caused vaginal tumors, fibroids, and breast cancer. It's no longer available for human use, but it's still available to veterinarians. Today, there are six sex hormones given to all cows entering feedlots. Three are natural and three are synthetic. In 1988, the European Union banned the use of all hormone growth promoters, so they are on a very different page than the United States. Some studies have indicated that women who consume beef may cause lower sperm concentration and possible fertility problems in their male offspring. A report by the Iowa Beef Center defends the use of hormone implants. Here's what they have to say. One, they improve growth rates by 10 to 20%. Two, 
they lower costs of beef production by 5 to 10%, which supposedly uh, is passed on to the consumer. Three, muscle growth is enhanced at the expense of fat deposition, that is, more lean meat. Four, the consumer will get leaner meat with a lower caloric content. Five, they claim that the added hormones in the cow are thousands of times less than the human body normally produces. Six, they claim that other foods like milk and eggs have much higher concentrations of hormones. And finally, seven, the current hormone usage has not been proven to adversely affect cancer rates or early puberty in girls. There is another very important hormone that the FSIS does not consider monitoring. It's recombinant bovine growth hormone called RBGH for short. It's a synthetic genetically engineered hormone sold to dairy farmers to increase milk production. It has been in use since the FDA approved it in 1993, but the European Union, Canada, and other countries have banned it. Why be concerned about this hormone in milk cows? Well, remember that dairy cows, after their fertility time comes to an end, are slaughtered for hamburger meat. In 2017, the FSIS actually tested twice as many dairy cows as all other cows combined together. The natural hormone in cows is called somatotropin and is made in the pituitary gland. It promotes growth and cell replication. It's also known as bovine growth hormone, BGH, or bovine somatotropin, BST. Ugh, more acronyms. All of these cow hormones act to produce another growth hormone called insulin-like growth hormone, or IGF-1, which stimulates cell growth. Now here's the key thing to remember. The molecular structure of IGF-1 in cows and humans is identical. So this brings up the key question. If we eat beef with residues of BST or RBGH, will human cells be stimulated to grow unnaturally to form tumors? That's the million dollar question. Some early studies found a relationship between blood levels of IGF-1 and the development of prostate, breast, colorectal, and other cancers, but later studies have failed to confirm these reports or have found weaker relationships. There is a second concern, which is not as big, but still troubles people. Cows given RBGH tend to get infected udders and receive more antibiotics than cows not given the growth hormone. That means there is a higher risk of antibiotic residues in hamburger. Although the use of RBGH is still approved, in the United States, demand for the product has decreased in recent years. Many large grocery store chains no longer carry milk from cows treated with RBGH. A United States Department of Agriculture survey conducted in 2007 found that less than one in five cows at 17% were being injected with RBGH. Of course, we don't know anything about RBGH in beef since that is not monitored by the FSIS. It's possible 
that the RBGH clears the dairy cow system by the time it is slaughtered, and maybe that's why the FSIS doesn't monitor its presence in beef. Earlier, I mentioned that the FSIS tests cow carcass samples for antibiotics. This is one of the most disturbing controversies in the history of food production. We all know that antibiotics are administered to sick people and animals to fight bacterial infections. Livestock farmers provide antibiotics to their cows to maintain their health. So, what's the big deal? Well, back in the early 50s, some farmers noticed that when their cows were given antibiotics for health issues, they gained weight, up to 3%. That may not sound like much, but when millions of cows are treated, that equates to a big savings in feed costs. That discovery became a national trend, and soon, sub-therapeutic amounts of antibiotics were being added to cattle feed to fatten them up, and incidentally, to keep the spread of infections down, particularly for cattle packed together in feedlots amidst feces, urine, and grime. I first learned about this practice in the early 1980s when I was teaching a consumer chemistry class. I was alarmed back then, but over 35 years later, with antibiotic feed still in the marketplace, I'm downright scared. Only about 30% of the antibiotics sold in this country are used for humans. In 2015, the FDA estimated that the amount of antibiotics used for food animals was about 34 million pounds. Say that again, 34 million pounds. Most of those drugs were also used to treat human diseases. Way back in 1977, a warning was issued by Gregory Ahart, the Director of Human Resources Division, who gave testimony before the House Committee on Interstate and Foreign Commerce Oversight and Investigations Committee regarding the lack of regulation of antibiotics in animal feeds. Here's one quote from his testimony. Although scientists have determined that several antibiotics failed to meet one or more of the safety criteria, and although many antibiotics have not been proven effective under approved conditions of use, the FDA has permitted the continued use of subtherapeutic levels of these antibiotics in animal feeds. End quote. What is the current concern over antibiotic use in cows and other animals? Well, there are basically two concerns. One, antibiotic resistance in humans, and two, rising obesity. Probably most of you have heard about the antibiotic resistance issue. It's been raging for years. The problem arises from both the overprescribing of antibiotics by doctors to humans and the sub-therapeutic use of them to feed animals. The story goes something like this. An antibiotic kills most bacteria in a living system, but some survive. The survivors pass on the resistance to their offspring, who become even better survivors. Ultimately, the bacteria become resistant to the drug, and its effectiveness in treating disease either diminishes or is eliminated. Since there are a limited number of effective antibiotics in the marketplace, and there are not many new classes being created, there is a danger that some of the best drugs for treating dangerous infections will no longer be available in the near future. A health crisis will be the anticipated result. Now here's the beef scenario. Because of the antibiotic-laced feed, bacteria in cows develop antibiotic resistance. 
through improper handling or cooking, humans get exposed to those antibiotic-resistant bacteria in the meat and they get infected. In turn, the resistant bacteria start populating in people's guts, crowding out friendly bacteria and changing the microbiome. When disease sets in, prescribed antibiotics are unable to effectively combat the, the infection and the person gets very sick and possibly dies. End of story. Well, as I said, the number two concern is obesity. In 2015, the Atlantic magazine published an article about the possibility that antibiotics could cause obesity. They cited the case of a 32-year-old mother who had a vaginal infection. An antibiotic got rid of the infection, but another bacterium in her system became dominant and made her very sick. She got treated with some more antibiotics, but her condition continued to deteriorate and her gut flora were being destroyed. Finally, her doctor suggested a fecal transplant. If you don't know what a fecal transplant is, get ready to be grossed out. Feces from another person, in this case the woman's daughter, were transplanted into her bowels. The idea is to populate the intestines with friendly bacteria that will compete with the antibiotic-resistant ones and hopefully eliminate them. The procedure was a success, and the woman got better. However, there was an unfortunate side effect. She gained 34 pounds, making her obese for the first time in her life. Why did that happen? Scientists speculate that the woman gained weight for the same reason that young cows gain weight when given antibiotics. Does that sound pretty far-fetched? Well, it's not. Several studies have shown a relationship between gut bacteria and obesity. When a fecal transplant takes place between a thin donor and an overweight recipient, the overweight patient loses weight. That's the reverse effect. David Johnson, a professor of medicine and chief of gastroenterology at Eastern Virginia Medical School and the former president of the American College of Gastroenterology, said the following, quote, if I take a rat that is genetically bred to be a skinny rat and I transpose the stool from a genetically bred fat rat into the skinny rat, I can make that rat fat. And the weight goes up within two weeks. End of quote. In 2014, an article was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association Pediatrics that described a study that found that repeated exposure to broad-spectrum antibiotics within the first 24 months of life significantly increased a child's likelihood of becoming obese later in life. That statement is troubling because children age 0 to 2 have the highest rates of antibiotic use of any age group. From 2000 to 2010, there was a 143% increase in antibiotic use. Now, why would antibiotics cause people to gain weight, or animals for that matter? That's not a thoroughly understood phenomenon. But you probably have noticed that when you take antibiotics, you are warned that an upset stomach and diarrhea can be side effects. The antibiotics are not selective for specific bacteria. They'll kill everything in their path, good bacteria as well as bad bacteria. 
So, the precious bacterial balance in your intestinal tract gets messed with when antibiotics are taken, causing upset tummies. Researchers from Johns Hopkins found that taking antibiotics can permanently change the microbiome, which could affect ways that food is broken down, possibly increasing the number of calories absorbed. Now, some of you may be saying that I've got nothing to worry about since I don't use antibiotics and I don't eat meat. Think again. You still have an exposure. Cows, on average, produce 18 gallons of manure every day. Much of that manure is used as fertilizer for vegetable crops. A large amount of the administered antibiotics gets pooped or peed out, so they can wind up undetected in vegetables like carrots, lettuce, and green onions. Also, manure can find its way into lakes, rivers, and streams. The antibiotic chemicals break down slowly, so they can expose animals and humans for long periods of time. Ultimately, we have to ask this question. Does the use of antibiotics for livestock production, where they save farmers significant money, outweigh the public health? I don't think so, but there is a ray of light. In the beginning of January, the FDA issued a directive that animal producers would no longer be able to buy over-the-counter medicated feed if it contains antimicrobials important to human health. The producers must work directly with veterinarians for permission. Producers would also not be able to use antimicrobials in feed for the sole purpose of growth promotion or feed efficiency. This is a good first step in checking the overuse of antibiotics, but I don't know if that policy has been successfully instituted. Next, I want to address the subject of processing chemicals used in beef production. The slaughtering of animals is inherently a dirty business, so various sanitation methods have been developed to deal with that problem. Some of these are low risk and some have been very controversial. I'll talk about a few of them. From an article in Food Safety Magazine dated June 2013, quote, bacteria present on hides, hooves, and other external surfaces of the cattle at the time of slaughter are potential sources of contamination of the carcass and subsequently of all derived beef products. Fecal contamination of carcasses is the primary avenue for contamination by pathogens. Thus, an intervention step to reduce microbial contamination in hides is paramount. Reducing microbial load in the hide improves the efficacy of other pathogen interventions during the processing stage and reduces the probability of cross-contamination of carcasses and primal, primal during processing, end of quote. To get rid of dirt and pathogens, processing plants may use mild alkaline detergents or a washing solution consisting of lactic acid, a mild sanitizer that doesn't get rid of all the pathogens but greatly reduces the concentration of them. Lactic acid is a natural chemical found in flesh, so it is considered safe. For humans, when muscles are overworked as an athletic activity, lactic acid is generated in the muscles, causing fatigue. The industry brand of lactic acid is a synthetic material produced in a factory. Lactic acid, if you read food labels, is also a common food additive. Soap and lactic acid are not considered controversial. But the use of ammonia 
by the beef industry created a firestorm in 2009. You may remember the incident as the pink slime affair. It's a complicated and convoluted tale. The New York Times broke the story. Most of the information I found about ammonia as a processing ingredient came from the Times article and a Wikipedia entry. A company called Beef Products Incorporated, BPI for short, wanted to incorporate fatty trimmings from cow carcasses into ground beef to better utilize residual meat. The trimmings were normally used for pet food and cooking oil, and they were more susceptible to bacterial contamination than the muscle portions of beef. Since the fatty part was removed using a centrifuge, the product was called Lean Finely Textured Beef. The company later found that if they injected ammonia, a noxious and toxic gas, into the ground beef, the pathogen levels were knocked way down to an undetectable point. Because of E. coli scares in the beef industry, the USDA endorsed the ammonia treatment in 2001. The government even went so far as to remove the requirement to test that product for bacterial contamination and stated that the BPI company would not be subject to recalls. In the early 2000s, BPI began selling ground beef to fast food restaurants like McDonald's and Burger King, as well as grocery stores. Its product was cheaper than conventional ground beef. Users could use it as a filler and save maybe 3% in costs. More shockingly, the product was approved for the federal school lunch program. So millions of school-age kids consumed the ammonia-treated beef, which some food scientists claim was not 100% beef muscle, but also contained connective tissue. Sadly, there were still pathogen outbreaks in ground beef traced to the beef products company, whose ammonia treatment was not consistently eliminating the pathogens. In 2004, lunch officials increased the amount of BPI meat allowed in its hamburgers from 10 to 15 percent to increase the savings. Strangely, in a taste test at the time, some school children favored burgers with higher amounts of the ammonia-treated beef. In March 2012, an ABC News series about pink slime included claims that approximately 70% of ground beef sold in U.S. supermarkets contained the additive ammonia at that time. The news went viral. Some companies and organizations stopped offering ground beef sold by the BPI company and others. Plants making the treated meat closed down and many workers were laid off. In September 2012, BPI filed a defamation lawsuit against the American Broadcasting Company for false claims about their product. By 2017, BPI was seeking $1.9 billion in damages. On June 28, 2017, the ABC company announced that it had settled the lawsuit. Terms of the settlement were at least $177 million. Lawyers for BPI believe that this settlement is the largest amount ever paid in a media defamation case in the United States. Well, what's going on with pink slime today? 
In the United States, the product is allowed to be used in ground beef up to 15% without labeling the package, and it can be used in beef-based processed meats like hot dogs. The use of ammonia as an antimicrobial agent is approved by the FDA and is included on the FDA's list of GRAS, generally recognized as safe, procedures. The product is banned in Canada due to the presence of the ammonia in it, and it is banned for human consumption in the European Union. One of the biggest producers of finely textured beef is the cargo company, but in 2017, they started declaring the ingredient on package labels. Cargill and BPI management claims that sales of the product have recovered since the ABC breaking story in 2012. Well, that's the end of this story. Does your ground beef contain connective tissue or ammonia residues or ammonia tissue byproducts? Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. The government does not require disclosure. While I'm on the subject of ground beef, I'll tell you about some other components that may be in it. Cheek meat, that's exactly what it sounds like, is permitted up to 25%, but must be declared on the label. Also, meat from the esophagus or diaphragm of the cow is permitted in the preparation of ground beef. Finally, in 2017, the FSIS declared that it was permissible for producers to use cow hearts in ground beef, which ended an almost 40-year prohibition. That's what you call a heart-rending decision. All of those organ meats fall under the name OFAL, O-F-F-A-L, which sounds a lot like awful. The use of esophagus or diaphragm organs or hearts in ground beef does not require to be declared on the package label. When beef shows up at your local grocery store butcher shop and, and gets packaged for sale, something else can get added to it. Have you ever noticed how red the meat looks when you are sallying down the meat aisle? That's no accident. Beef muscle taken off a cow carcass is typically burgundy or purple. After about a 15-minute exposure to air, it turns bright cherry red. It's kind of like the change of color that occurs when deoxygenated blood flowing in your bluish veins picks up oxygen in the lungs and turns red. After the beef has been refrigerated for about five days, it may turn brown due to further oxidative changes. Most consumers would turn their nose up to a brown brisket or ribeye, so grocery stores want to optimize the appearance of the beef during the time it's waiting to be sold. Hence, we arrive at the next hidden chemical additive, which is introduced in a process called Modified Atmosphere Packaging, or MAP, M-A-P for short. Of course, it has to have an acronym. Everybody is familiar with the shrink wrap film, which covers the packages of meat. It certainly helps to protect the meat from exposure to the atmosphere and to contamination. But in addition to the plastic cover on the package, a gaseous mixture may be bathing the meat inside. In 2006, the FDA approved the use of MAP for red meat to help preserve the color that consumers are looking for. A typical MAP mixture might be 0.4% carbon monoxide, 
30% carbon dioxide, and 70% nitrogen. This is an oxygen-free atmosphere within the package, which prevents further oxidation of the surface of the beef. The FDA has described mat mixtures as grass, generally recognized as safe. Note the use of the toxic gas carbon monoxide at a low concentration. The MAP mixture allows the beef to maintain the desired red color through the expected shelf life, but it doesn't extend the shelf life or limit bacterial spoilage. Is the carbon monoxide in the gas harmful? Well, there's not enough in it to kill you, even if you breathe at all, so that's not an issue. It's not like you're running a car in a garage with the door closed. However, there has been some concern that the carbon monoxide might mask spoilage and extend apparent shelf life, but consumers are still advised to follow the shelf life dates on the packages. The greater danger of carbon monoxide appears to be the exposure that packaging workers might get while on the job. However, take note that the European Union Japan and Singapore have banned the use of carbon monoxide for packaging fresh meat, probably due to insufficient research indicating its safety. In the United States, meat packers are not required to label beef packages that use carbon monoxide as a color preservative. Also, note that MAP gases of different compositions are used in other food packages, such as bags of salad greens, to maintain shelf life. That's why ready-to-eat packages of lettuce are puffed out. I'm nearing the end of the narrative about the hidden ingredients in beef. I've looked at what cows eat, what types of chemicals might wind up in their bodies, how the beef is processed in slaughterhouses, and how it's made to look good in butcher shops. Let's move on to the last topic. You've purchased a slab of beef and are ready to pan, fry, or grill it. Before it gets into your mouth and digestive system, are there hidden ingredients that you might get exposed to? Of course there are, otherwise I wouldn't have asked that question. The following information comes from the American Cancer Society. There are some dangerous chemicals produced from cooking beef or other meat at high temperatures, especially above 300 degrees Fahrenheit, such as in pan frying or grilling over an open flame. Those chemicals are grouped under the name of heterocyclic amines, or HCAs for short. Studies have shown that HCAs are mutagens, that is, they can alter DNA, increasing the risk of cancer. These chemicals are only found in meats cooked at high temperatures. Also, time enters into the picture. The longer the meats are cooked, as in well done, the higher the concentration of HCAs. In many experiments, uh, rodents fed a diet supplemented with HCAs developed tumors of the breast, colon, liver, skin, lung, prostate, and other organs. In 2015, an independent panel of experts convened by the International Agency for Research on Cancer determined consumption of red meat to be probably carcinogenic to humans, called a group 2A carcinogen. Based largely on data from the epidemiological studies and on the strong evidence from mechanistic studies, However, the jury is still out since different studies have led to conflicting results, as usual, and a definitive link between HCAs and cancer in humans has not been proven. Another group of carcinogens associated with cooking beef at high temperatures are polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, or PAHs. 
These chemicals arise from meat juices and fat dripping on the surface of grills, causing flames and smoke to form. It's the smoke that contains the PAHs, which adhere to the surface of the meat. Rodents-fed PAHs also develop cancers, including leukemia and tumors of the GI tract and lungs. As with HCAs, the verdict is still out on PAHs and their direct link with cancer in humans. The World Cancer Research Fund, American Institute for Cancer Research, issued a report in 2007 with dietary guidelines that recommended limiting the consumption of red and processed, including smoked, meats. You've probably been anxiously waiting for this next line. Here is the last hidden ingredient in beef. It's actually not just one ingredient, but a whole group of chemicals. It's got one honking name, Advanced Glycation End Products, or AGEs for short. The following information comes from a health newsletter published by the University of Berkeley. AGEs are found in many foods, but they get concentrated when meat is browned. Quote, more AGAs form when meats are grilled, roasted, seared, fried, or baked. All these are dry heat methods. At relatively high temperatures and for longer times when they are steamed, poached, stewed, or boiled. Methods that retain food moisture. AGAs form from the reactions of fat or protein with sugar. Quote, one danger of AGEs is that they can clog the very small blood vessels, the microvascular system, throughout the body, especially in the kidneys, eyes, heart, and brain, which may contribute to the risk of various diabetic complications. Quote, with aging, AGEs accumulate in the cells and the bloodstream because of decades of formation and ingestion, along with a decline in kidney function. Accumulation of AGEs can wreak cellular havoc, contributing in turn to oxidative stress, chronic inflammation, and premature aging. It is also associated with many chronic diseases and conditions, including insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, rheumatoid arthritis, cataracts, cancer, and kidney disease. So whether AGAs play a causative role remains controversial. Various chemical reactions increase AGA formation, as when certain foods are cooked at very high temperatures or others, like cheese, are aged. The source of animal protein also affects the generation of AGEs, with beef generally having the most, and fish, unless broiled or fried, the least. The fat in meat tends to contain the most AGEs. More research is needed to fully understand the health effects of AGEs, both those produced by the body and those consumed from foods. That's it for the hidden ingredients in beef. Just in passing, I want to mention a native ingredient in beef and other mammals that's been associated with coronary heart disease and cancer. It's called sialic acid. That's S-I-A-L-I-C. If you want to hear about its fascinating story, Google sialic acid and Dr. Varkey, a noted researcher in the field. Uh, his name is Spelled V-A-R-K-I. All right, so what are the take-home messages for today's show? 
From the time a cow is raised in a pasture or on a range, to the time it's fattened up in a feedlot, to the time it's slaughtered, to the time its flesh is packaged, to the time it's cooked, the animal and its muscle tissue are exposed to a variety of chemicals, some of which may do a body harm. When beef is purchased, the package shows no indication of what could possibly be in it. As a supposed natural product, the meat is bought on faith. We trust that our government is inspecting, testing, grading, and sanctioning that product as safe for human consumption. But as I've talked about in this program, beef could have a variety of chemical residues in it due to exposure to herbicides, pesticides, added hormones, antibiotics, and sanitation chemicals. Furthermore, the cooking of the beef, depending on method and time, could generate carcinogens and other chemicals that could adversely affect human health. What is a consumer to do? Well, there are a variety of options. To avoid all exposure, just say no. Or limit your exposure by making the following careful choices from reasonable to extreme. First, choose to eat only organic beef. In that case, at least you know that the cows are not eating grass or feed that has added synthetic chemicals. Second, don't cook beef products at high temperatures or for long times. Ditch the grill. Third, get to know a local livestock producer and butcher. Choose the cow you want to eat and follow it from cradle to grave to make sure that it's not exposed to a toxic environment. And lastly, if you have the land and resources available, plus the know-how, raise your own cow, kill it, and package the meat yourself. Only then will you have very high certainty that the meat you eat is not chemically contaminated. You've got mail, baby, yeah! It's time for Food Eater Mail. I don't get many messages from listeners, but when I do, they are very positive and supportive, which I appreciate. If you send me a message, there's a very high chance in the near future that you'll hear all or part of your message in a podcast episode. Janice E., living in Egypt, said, quote, I just wanted to say that I am very much enjoying your podcast while I'm stuck in horrendous Cairo traffic. Extremely educational, and I know I will re-listen to most. I have picked up some great notes to remember. Fortunately, my diet has always been very natural due to living in Egypt and my family's too. Your podcasts are now being listened to by my kids and family members who I hope will care even more. I replied, that was a wonderful note. I appreciate you taking the time to comment on the podcast. You are the furthest listener that I have received a note from. You are fortunate to be living in a country whose food system is not dominated by processed and industrial products. Thanks for listening and the positive feedback. Well, it's time to bring this show to a close. To all the listeners in podcast land, old and new, I appreciate you taking the time to tune in. If you have a little bit more time, I'd greatly appreciate a review, good, bad, or indifferent at the iTunes store. You can find all the episodes of Food Labels Revealed and their show notes at the hosting website called Podbean. That's at www.podbean.com or just by googling Food Labels Revealed, which should pop up on the first results page. 
And, of course, you can always listen to the podcast on your smartphone or tablet by downloading a podcast app like Apple Podcasts or Google Play or a host of others too numerous to mention. If you have a question or comment on anything about food ingredients or this podcast or a particular show, or just want to say hello, drop me a line at foodlabelsrevealed at gmail.com. That's foodlabelsrevealed at gmail.com. All one string. If you think your family, friends, coworkers, or acquaintances might be interested in this podcast, tweet or post a link through your social media outlets to get the word out. Don't forget that the references provided in this particular show are available in the show notes located at the Podbean hosting website. Lastly, I have a Facebook page that is an adjunct to the podcast. Several times a week, I post a news item related to food ingredients, processed foods, and food trends. Just search in Facebook under Food Labels Revealed Podcast. Please give it a like. When you get a chance, comment if you wish, and feel free to share the posts. Next month, I return to the world of restaurant fast food, where I'll pit two giants in the industry against each other to determine which serves the least nutritious food. Until later, remember this, if you want to eat well and keep yourself healthy, eat food mainly from natural plants, not manufacturing plants. The outro music piece is called Private Eye, composed by Kevin McLeod.